You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Well, all right, great to see everybody today. And a couple of things real quick. First, right off the bat, first of all, it is Hispanic Heritage Month. And so just to honor our Hispanic brothers and sisters, I do have a little bit of a message. People wonder what's on the t-shirt. It just says, con todo. There you go. That's right. So there we go. Second of all, can't wait to see all of our unmarrieds this coming weekend. If you're single, you're not married, love to have you with me at our event. Let me just real quick speak to my fellow men here who are single. You need to be there. All right. Okay. If at all possible, this is going to be way better than whatever else you had going on. All right. So sign up and join me. You'll be glad that you did. Scripture reading today is going to be from the book of Luke, chapters 3 and 7. Here we go. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. John's disciples told him about all these things, calling two of them. He sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? And when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So reading of God's word, all God's people said, amen. Yeah, we are, as you can see, in the middle of a series that's going to go through the end of this year, looking at what we now call the Gospel of Luke. It was named, of course, after its author, but in Luke's day, in the author's day, it was not called a gospel. It was simply known as an historical account or a narrative of the life of someone named Jesus of Nazareth. And back in the very first words of his account, written within one generation of the life of Jesus, Luke the author told us something incredible. He told us that not just one or two accounts had been written, but that many accounts of the life of Jesus had already been written. Now, in an age where no one had a biography written about them, in an age where the records of hardly anyone's life ever survived antiquity, in an age where we barely know anything about even the most important rulers on the planet, in a day and age where if what you did didn't provide you with food, somehow a Jewish day laborer from Galilee gets many accounts written about him? I mean, come on, I'll ask you again what I asked a few weeks ago. How many accounts of your life do you think will be written about you when you're gone? I mean, how many accounts about you will be written? I think the answer is not many. (laughs) 
Not many, not many accounts, but the reason Luke is writing down his account is not because he's asking who God is, although that's a great question to ask. That's fun to debate and discuss. Luke's not asking if we should trust the Bible, although of course we should and there are reasons why, but Luke is seeking to ask and answer a single question about the one person on whom all of this rises and falls. He's trying to ask and answer this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And perhaps, perhaps there's no better place to look for an answer to that question than right here in chapter 7, where we read that someone no less than John the Baptizer, John the Baptist, someone who was the first cousin of Jesus, someone who just four short chapters earlier had professed loyalty and allegiance to Jesus, now, here in chapter 7, John the Baptist openly doubts and questions Jesus Christ. Now, this is remarkable because if you were writing an account of someone you claimed that everyone should be following, why would you include an account where one of his closest friends and family members now doubts him? That doesn't help you gain followers. That only helps you lose followers. So why include it? Well, number one, you would only include it if it were true and you were interested in getting the story right and number two, you would only include it if it helped you answer the question you were already asking, who is Jesus? And as Luke is going to help us see today, Jesus, Jesus is the one who lovingly offends. He's the one who lovingly offends. It's okay. First service wasn't excited about the topic either, but we're going to try to help you get there. He is the one who lovingly offends. Luke is trying to help us see that sometimes, sometimes Jesus moves into our lives as someone who lovingly offends us. Why is this? How does this happen? How does this work inside of us? What do we do with it? Try to find some answers to those kinds of questions here. Look at Luke 7 in three parts. We're going to look at John's modern offense. What he vocalizes here is a very modern way of putting it. Number two, let's look at Jesus's unique response to John and finally look at our binary choice. Sort of a this or that he presses us to make. We'll see it when we get there. But let's begin here in number one and take a look at John's modern offense. What was it? Well, here in chapter seven, we got it in the reading. John the Baptist is in prison. And John is in prison for calling out corruption in his government, specifically for addressing the sexual misconduct of his nation's leaders. And for all of this, he's imprisoned. And while John is in prison, John begins to suffer. And when John begins to suffer, John's disillusionment with Jesus begins. And it begins when John's friends visit him in prison and tell him about a few things. They tell him about how Jesus had healed the no-name lowly servant of a pagan Roman Gentile soldier oppressor. And they told him about how Jesus had raised from the dead the son of a widow, a poor widow, a person as far as we know, who had never stuck her neck out for God in public like John had. In verse 18 it says, and John's disciples told him about all these things. So this is what John did. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or 
should we expect someone else? Now, this is an incredibly modern thing to ask. I mean, John's question, I think, could be like copied and pasted and posted straight out of Time Magazine or CNN or you know, the Statesman or someplace. Because here, someone's straight up asking the question, Jesus, are you the Messiah? Jesus, are you God? Who are you? Why is John asking this? Well, I want to look at his single question in two parts and phrase it like this. John here is having an emotional offense that leads to an intellectual crisis. An emotional offense that leads to an intellectual crisis. John's got this emotional offense because John the Baptist had been told that Jesus had been doing miracles for other people, but not for him. Other people were getting healed. Other people were getting miracles. But for the one who had faithfully followed, there was only prison and only suffering. John's asking this question. If you are who you say you are, why is my life going like this? Someone by the name of Dr. John Gerstner. Dr. John Gerstner was a pastor and seminary at Knox, pastor at Knox uh, Theological Seminary, and he gave an illustration one time in a message about a young woman back in the 1930s, a little while ago, who attended a Christian conference. And she decided to give her life to Christ in a special way and decided to commit her life to overseas full-time missionary service. And her heart was to go to Asia and to live there permanently. Now, Dr. Gerstner had said he had seen many young Christians make a similar vow, but never rarely followed through on what they had committed to. But this young woman was different. She had kept her resolve and retained her commitment in the forefront of her mind at the top of her life's choices. And she then, she began to go to different missionary agencies and educate herself on what it would take to make her commitment a reality. And despite hearing statistics about how many missionaries were being martyred in Asia in the 1930s and 1940s, she wanted to go anyway. So they told her, all right, if you don't want to go, great, but you're going to have to do two things. Number one, you're going to have to get cross-cultural and theological training. And number two, you have to be married. Be married. Now at that time, single American women, both for safety and cross-cultural reasons, it's just the way it was, they weren't allowed to go overseas as missionaries. So after hearing all of this, one night she sat down and she said, okay, God, I take my hands off my life. I give you everything. I don't care about a comfortable life. I don't care about a safe life. It's all yours. You can have it. I'll go where you send me. There's just one thing that I need. I need a husband. Because if I'm not married, I can't go and serve you. So she went to a Bible college, knowing that that kind of education really wouldn't help her in the marketplace, anywhere else. But, but she did it anyway. She got her degree. But no husband presented himself. So she graduated then from the Bible college and she went to a graduate level missionary training school. It was a two semester program and all the way through she'd have a boyfriend, no single prospect to marry and on the night before she graduated, she told Dr. Gerstner, she said, I sat in my dorm room, an angry young woman. She said, God, I've given everything for you. I put my life in your hands. I got nowhere else to go. I've trained for years for this. I've taken my hands off my life. And she sat in her dorm room, angry, wrestling with God. But that night, she said later, she suddenly realized something. She realized that she wasn't miserable because she had taken her hands off her life. She realized she was miserable 
because she really never had. She saw she had developed an idea of what it meant in her own mind to serve God and what she believed, therefore, he would have to do for her in return. And Dr. Gerstner closed his sermon by looking out at his audience, and I'll do the same thing right now, but no, I'm not closing. Don't get your hopes up already. <laughs> but I'll ask you, because he, he asked him, if this girl, who had spent a third of her life at that point getting ready for missionary service and potential martyrdom, who had spent years saying goodbye to everything and everyone she knew, to loved ones and safety and material security. He asked if that girl realized she had never taken her hands off her life, he asked his audience, do you think you really have? Do you think you've taken your hands off your life? He said, I doubt it. I doubt it. See, many times our emotional offenses with God come not because we've taken our hands off our life. They really reveal we never really have. Are we like John the Baptist today? Are we like the thief on the cross next to Jesus who basically asked another version of the same question? He said, if you're really the son of God, get me out of here. Get me out of here. Get me off the cross. John's emotional offense led to an intellectual crisis. He asks, now, second, are you the one we're expecting? He asks, or should we expect someone else? So let me try to unpack the intellectual crisis bit here like this. Uh, in a lot of uh, Christian circles, other circles for sure, when it comes to talking, say, about single people, again, who, uh, who they think they're going to marry, uh, who they think they should marry, who they're going to marry, there's always a lot of talk about the one. Yeah. Right? You've heard about the one. Like, you walk into a room when you're single, I did this for years. You ask, are you the one? Like your radar's on, like boop. Boop, 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 boop. Maybe, maybe. Are you the one? And if that person kind of, you know, makes their way into your life, you get asked by your friends, is he the one, right? Or your parents start asking you, is she the one? With hopefully, you know, grandkids and their starry eyes on the way. And the thing is, if you say though, well, no, that person, they're not the one, you're kind of implying that there might be someone else who is the one. And John's saying here, I think kind of the same thing, what people say about relationships and what we all say about something. If Jesus isn't the one, something or someone else will be. It's always either or. John doesn't say, are you the one should we expect? Or should we just not expect anyone at all? No, he says, or should we expect someone else? See, it will be Jesus or our work. It will be Jesus or our sex drive, perhaps. It will be Jesus or your unmanageable emotions. It will be Jesus or your kids. It will be Jesus or something. And here's why. Someone by the name of Dr. Murray Bowen, you may have heard of him, family psychologist. He did something called family systems theory, and he basically proved that all relationships seek to triangulate, that two-person relationships are inherently unstable. Some of you are like, tell me about it. I know that, all right? The two-person relationships always seek out a third point, a kind of a third party in their fundamental need to achieve stability. And this is how family systems can get weird. Like when parents triangulate down onto one child, hoping it'll fix the relationship. Uh, and when it comes to your relationship with anything, and in this case specifically, when it comes to your relationship with your life, what's your third point? 
Hmm? What will you triangulate toward? You look at your life. Your life looks back at you and ask, where are we going to go? What's our third point? I'll ask you, what's your the one? The one. See, John here, thankfully, he's being super honest and acknowledging what we all should if we don't put our faith and hope and trust in Jesus. It will go in something or someone else. John has an emotional offense that leads to an intellectual crisis. See, he's not just stuck in prison. He's stuck in his faith. How is he going to get out? Where is he going to go? How will Jesus help him? Number two, let's look and see how Jesus' unique response to John unfolds. All right. If you read the gospel at any level, and many of you have, I'll start like this, at any, at any level, one of the things you notice more than almost more than anything else, is the degree to which Jesus rarely gives a direct response to a question. He almost always says something cryptic when someone asks him something like, Jesus, should we pay taxes? I don't know. Should you pay taxes? You know, like, where should we live? Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. I have no place to lay my head. You know, like, who am I? I don't know. Who are you? You know, like, He's rarely, he rarely answers with a direct, a direct question. He almost always responds with a question or a story about a sheep or a pig or a goat or something, you know? And yet, right here, he gives one of the most direct answers to any question ever asked of him. Luke tells us this, verse 22. So he replied to the messengers, no parable, no question, no cryptic answer. Go back and report to John what you've seen and heard the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news are proclaimed to the poor. You go and tell old John the Baptist all of that. Now, I love this response. And I think John gets this response because John sort of stumbles onto that right question. Again, are you the one Jesus? And here's why turning to Jesus, asking him that question, are you the one, is the right question to ask. Because if you come here with other questions first, questions like, does God have a plan for my life? And will he help me get there? Or questions like, I want to become a famous artist or YouTube star or professional athlete or doctor or artist or whatever. Will God help me do that? Or can I live out whatever identity I want to and be a Christian? No matter what question you're asking, I think Jesus would respond to you and say, if you're asking me any of those questions first, you're asking the wrong first question. The wrong first question. I think Jesus would say, I am the first question you should be asking about. Before you ask any of those, ask me first who I am and who am I? He says this, I'm the one who opens blind eyes. I can make the lame walk. I can make the deaf hear. I'm the one who's got a, a gospel for the poor. I've come to bring a whole new kingdom into the world. That's who I am. In other words, John, I'm not just a political figure. I'm not just a nice moral teacher who does story time for the kids. No, look at the signs. Look at the miracles. John, I'm God come in a body. And then he says this, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now, this word stumble, in the Greek, you may know it's the word scandalon, where we get our English word scandal. It literally means to offend. He's saying, blessed is the one who doesn't get offended at me. 
This is like the weirdest beatitude ever. Remember all the blessed are those? You got one more. Blessed is the one who isn't offended at me. He's basically saying, I understand I'm offensive, but don't get offended. Like, why are you mad, bro? You know, it's like, this is it's kind of like when someone com- starts a conversation with you and they say, listen, listen, hey, I need to tell you something, but don't be offended. But, and then they tell you something offensive, right? You just know it's coming. Or a friend gives you a book for Christmas with some kind of title like this, How to Get Rid of Bad Breath. You're like, thanks for the gift? Like, it's kind of loving, I guess, but it's also kind of offensive. And Jesus is doing the same thing. He's being loving, but acknowledging what he said. The gift he just gave John is offensive. Why? Because again, he just claimed, like he does on almost every page of every gospel, he just claimed divinity. He told John, let the miracles speak for themselves. I am the one. And Jesus does this over and over and over again when he says stuff like this. For example, he says stuff like this. Before Abraham ever was, I am. Wait. He does this when he makes the claim. He's got the power to forgive sins. Like if I overheard you were mad at Melissa Milliken, although no one's ever mad at Melissa Milliken. Let's just acknowledge that. But you're mad at Melissa for saying something to you. And I looked at Melissa and said, I forgive you. He'd be like, hang on, wait, wait, you can't do that. Like, I'm the one she said the thing to. i like, I know, I forgive her. You could only do that if all sin, right, is against you. I'd be claiming to be divine. That's what Jesus did. Jesus does this, he claims to be divine when he casually drops stuff like this. You know, I was there when Satan fell from heaven. Or when he breezily drops some off-the-cuff kind of conversational tidbits like this. Over the centuries, Israel... I kept on sending prophets to you. <laughs> You're like, wait, what? You're 30. <laughs> over and over, claims to be divine. Why would that be offensive? Come on, you know. You know, we know in our modern, Western view of plurality, faith, religion, we don't like anything exclusive. Like the backstreet boys say, and you're welcome for this, I don't want it your way, Jesus, I want it that way, which is to say, my own way. And this is something that theologians call the scandal of particularity when it comes to Jesus. That is, people are scandalized. They're offended at the thought there is one particular, exclusive Savior and Lord who's coming to the earth, that his name would be Jesus. Someone by the name of Anne Rice. Anne Rice was the novelist famous for the book Interview with the Vampire, otherwise known later as the movie with both Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise in it. Uh, but some years ago, she decided she was going to write a novel uh, with Jesus as a character in it. Like all good novelists do, she decided she was going to do some research about his life and the time period and all that stuff. She was a completely secular person, was not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination. And when she began to research the existing New Testament scholarship, written by many of the leading minds and scholars at major academic institutions, she was taken aback, floored by how skeptical about him and hostile towards the person of Jesus they were when compared to every other field of historical research. This is what she said in her own autobiography called Call Out of Darkness, A Spiritual Confession. She said this, I discovered that so many of these scholars who had devoted their lives to New Testament scholarship 
disliked Jesus Christ. Some pitied him as a helpless failure. Others sneered at him, and some showed outright contempt. I had never come across this in any other field of research. People who go into Elizabethan studies are not out to prove Queen Elizabeth was a fool. They don't make snickering remarks about her or spend their entire careers trying to pick apart her historical reputation. Yes, of course, a scholar might study a villain, but even then they usually argue for his or her place in history. But in general, scholars do not spend their lives in the company of a historical figure whom they openly despise. And yet these New Testament scholars detested and despised Jesus Christ. Now, you ask, well, why is that the case? And again, come on, you know, if the claims of Elizabeth I are true or if they're not true, they don't really matter. They don't really affect your life. But if the claims of Jesus Christ to be the son of God and the savior of the world are true, those claims change everything. It just directly affects your life in almost every detail. And if he really is the son of God with power, that demands a response and that's why Anne Rice converted and became a Christian. Yeah. So what about you? What about me? Number three, how will we respond? How will we respond? Start like this. Over the last few years, you may have noticed, thankfully, I guess, we've had not just one, but two movies, films made about Fred Rogers, about Mr. Rogers. And then of course, you know, you know this, uh, Mr. Rogers was the famous children's television show host. And uh, Mr. Rogers was amazing because he'd come into the door every afternoon, put on that cardigan, hang it up on a hanger, put on his comfy sneakers and tell the children of the world that they were precious. It's one of his songs, I'm precious. And I want to tell you, all of this is absolutely wonderful. It's totally true. And there is such a deep, and profound sense in which Jesus has come to say the same thing. I mean, he told us that humans are precious to God. He told us that God is like a woman. His words, not mine, that'll blow your mind, Luke 15. God is like a woman who goes looking for a lost, for a coin. And she won't stop finding, it won't stop looking for it until she finds the coin because the coin's so precious to her, like she can't live without the coin. Like her welfare is bound up in that coin. And Jesus told us that people are like sheep, like, like, like a precious sheep that kind of runs off and a shepherd goes and looks for and won't stop looking for the sheep until he finds it because the shepherd's life and well-being are bound up with the sheep. So yes, we are all so precious to God. Like, like the songs that the kids' song sings, all, we all are precious in his sight. And Jesus, yes, came to tell us that we are precious to God. So why then did people want to kill him? Because no one ever made a death threat against Mr. Rogers for telling them they're precious. And this here, I hope you'll see, is where Jesus fundamentally diverges from all the Mr. Rogers of the world and every other historical faith leader or guru, whoever. Because Jesus not only said, yes, we are precious to God in those stories. In both those stories, he called us something else. He said, we, he said, people are lost 
we're lost. Which means humans cannot, no matter how hard we try, find ourselves within ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. Jesus' claims to divinity means we are so lost from God. We're like a sheep. And that's not a compliment, by the way, if you've ever been around a sheep. But we're like a sheep that's wandered off. And unless someone comes after it to save it, it will perish. Which is, by the way, the exact same word, perish, that Jesus uses in John 3, 16. You know this, some of you. Famous verse, for God so loved the world that he what? Come on. So loved the world that he gave. That he gave. That he gave his only son. Those who believe in him might not. And we get translated the word as perish, but it's the same word in the Greek, lost. Lost. God gave us Jesus so that we might not be lost to him. And so when John the Baptist asked Jesus, are you the one? John's showing him and us all that John's getting a little lost. He's gotten a little lost. He's gotten a little lost in his suffering. He's gotten a little lost in his emotional life. He's gotten lost in his mind and his offense. And so Jesus says, John, I don't want you or anyone else to be lost from me. So look at who I am. I'm the one who heals the sick. I open blind eyes and I got a gospel for and I care about the poorest of the poor. So Jesus offers him and us as evidence of his person, both his power and his love. Because if Jesus is only power without love, come on. He's just another megalomaniac, like a military dictator or a leader or a political leader who's out for power over you, not because they care about you, but because they want to dominate you. But on the other hand, if he's only what we think of in our modern, squishy, wishy-washy, secular way of love, and he's got no power, no kingly right to come into our lives, he's not divine, He's just a nice guy in a sweater on a kid's TV show. So he says, John, listen, I am powerful enough to raise the dead. I have authority over the human body and my kingdom is built on caring for the least of the least of these. And blessed is the one who doesn't stumble over all of it. Blessed is the one who isn't offended and walks away from me because of all of that. And yeah, he's telling him, John, yeah, sure, there's a directionality, caring for the poor, the sick, the lame, directionality of those who follow me, because my life has the same kind of direction, John. My life's heading for the cross, where I will go blind in the dark, where I'll become lame, unable to walk because of the Roman spike nailed between my feet where I'll become cast out like a leper and there'll be no one there to heal me. Even my father will have no good news for me on that day. And I will die making my own mother, herself a widow, now a motherless child, son, a a parent with a dead son. I'll become utterly lost, utterly lost. The humans can be found. But he shows us also that his father God will raise him from the dead so that we can know, that we can know, that we can know that if we believe in him, we'll have eternal life. I want to tell you, Jesus did not come just to be some airtight truth claim propositional on a theological textbook page. He came to be an airtight person with an indestructible and forever life. So what about you and me today? Jesus' claims, come on. They demand a response. Mr. Rogers' songs don't. 
I don't. Jesus' claims in life do. Have you responded personally? I'm talking about your mom or your dad or a grandparent or a friend. Have you responded personally to Jesus' claims? You can know if you have, if it's changed your life, if Jesus is now at the center. And if we don't hear first, if we don't feel the offense and move past the offense into the embrace of Jesus, let me tell you, I would question, I think Jesus would too, whether or not you really know him. See, when our modern secular culture tells us that there's this build-a-bear God <laughs> we construct who loves us just how we are, which is true, which is true, but says that God would never ask us to change and follow him, which is not true, that kind of love means nothing, and it can't ever change you. Because why does it matter if God loves us, if we are fine just how we are, if you and I are fine how we are, if we're not in need of change, if we don't need forgiveness of our sins and a restoration, a reconciliation with God, then the love of God is pointless. But when you see, if you'll see today, Jesus Christ, God come to earth in a body, nailed to a cross, and bleeding and dying and putting his life in your place, getting what you and I deserve so that we can get what he deserve. When that hits you now, the love of God becomes real and it changes you. Now you're blessed because you felt the offense and not turned away, but instead turned to follow Jesus. What will you say today? Let me take a moment and pray for us and give us the opportunity here to respond. Lord Jesus, we come in your name. And I'm praying for all these here, online in the room. Lord, for this moment of believing, that by your Holy Spirit, we'd have the grace to respond. If you're here and you're saying, I've never given my life to Jesus, but today is my day. I realize maybe I've heard about him from a friend or parent or whoever, or I just walked in and, and I want to become a Christian. I want to follow Jesus. Would you just raise your hand right now in this room? Come on. Somebody here or somebody online in this room. Listening. Today is my day. If that's you and you raise your hand, would you just pray this with me? Actually, uh, church, would you, everyone here, would you just pray this with me quickly? Say, Lord Jesus, I come to you now. And I thank you for coming for me. And I believe that you came for me, that you lived for me, that you died for me. You were raised to life for me. I ask that you would forgive me of my sin against you. That you would restore me to you. That you would put your seed in my life. That today I would be born again. I thank you, God, for hearing my prayer and answering it now. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.